tonight, breast cancer awareness and the fight to end the disease. It's all about early detection and examining yourself. Joan London and Cheryl Crow share their personal stories of struggle, survival, and triumph, and their mission to educate everyone on this deadly disease and to teach us the key to saving lives. Plus, we'll hear from a cancer expert on the ongoing shortage of chemo drugs affecting the nation. A Metro Focus special starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, estate of Roland Carlin. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime. And while we know some of the reasons for the disease, the genetic causes have not been very clear until now. According to two studies recently published in the journals Nature and Nature Genetics, researchers from around the world have discovered 72 previously unknown gene mutations that lead to the development of breast cancer. Their findings may help identify a small portion of women who are at a three times increased risk of developing the deadly disease. Though science offers hope in one day combating the illness, for women living with it, it is a daily fight for life. And unless you are a survivor, there are simply some things about breast cancer that you can't know or understand. Former Good Morning America host Joan London was diagnosed in 2014 and has since taken the forefront in the fight against cancer. She is now cancer-free and ready to tell her story of survival. Welcome to the program, Joan. It's my pleasure to be with you. Oh, well, it's an honor to have you here. Um, so, of course, we are huge fans, and so many people have followed your story from when you first got your diagnosis. But I want you to take me back to that moment. What went through your mind when you first heard those two words? You know, I had done so many interviews over the years with breast cancer experts, and I knew that statistic, one in eight uh, women will be diagnosed with breast cancer at some time during their lifetime. I just didn't think I'd be the one in eight because I didn't have it in my family history. So to be very honest, um, I just was kind of nonchalant about it. I don't think I ever ingested the information from all the different cancer experts that I interviewed in a personal way, like that it was really going to affect me. So I was pretty shocked when I heard those words. And by the way, I had a clean 3D mammogram that day. Wow. And then I walked across the hall and had an ultrasound and heard those words, you have cancer. So <clears throat> right from the outset, I felt this compelling need to go out and educate women and, and let them hear this my story so that they knew that they need to find out uh, if they have very dense breasts. And you can't tell it just by, you know, feeling your breasts. It's something that you find out in a mammogram. Uh -huh. um, so I've just kind of been out on the, the speaking trail for the last three years, ever since I was diagnosed, 
trying to help empower women with information. And that's how At Home with Joan came about, mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a closed um, community where people can come in, they can educate themselves, they can soak up the information. And I believe that if we share our stories, that other people learn. So I interviewed a lot of people, mm -hmm. and those interviews live on the website, and as well as, of course, interviews with oncologists and oncology nurses. Of course. And that seems like something that's really, really crucial for patients to be able to have a place where they can go to to learn all the questions they need to be asking and all of the different kinds of therapies that they can get. Why is it so important for people to be able to be their own advocate? The good news is... Research is being done at such an amazing rate. Answers are coming down the pike. New treatments are being made available. But what it means is that if you get this diagnosis or you're kind of helping someone who just got this diagnosis, you need to get a couple opinions. You need to educate yourself. You need to learn more about your specific disease. In breast cancer for women, it's very complex because it's not just one disease. It's different in every woman. So it makes it much more difficult to study breast cancer and to come up with answers. But there, the good news is that if you catch it early enough, breast cancer, you have a 99% chance that you'll survive it. That's amazing news for women today. And I hope they hear that so that many women don't want to go get a mammogram because they're afraid of the answer. But what you should be afraid of is afraid of dying. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, knowledge empowers us. Um, certainly in the health field, <sighs> knowledge really empowers us. Do you feel at all as though the conversation around breast cancer seems to be changing? We've seen some uh, very prominent young women come out and talk about getting tested for the breast cancer gene. Um, a lot of people being very open on social media about their journeys through treatment. Um, do you feel as though that's helping with uh, people oh. who are dealing with this? Absolutely. You know, um, it used to be that nobody talked about this. Mm -hmm. It actually used to be that doctors sometimes wouldn't even tell a woman that she had breast cancer, wouldn't want her to have to live with the anxiety. There was nothing they could really do about it anyway. And oftentimes women would live with this shame because it was something that was wrong with your breasts. And it's, you know, it affects your femininity and your, your sensibility of yourself. Thank goodness that times have changed. And today it is okay to talk about it there's an incredible sense of community among breast cancer survivors. Um, I never used to really totally get it. I'd see these events with everybody wearing pink, mm -hmm. but now I do, you know, now I understand the strength and the compassion that is waiting there for you. Um, if it's, you know, your time to go down that path. So I'm part of that now. You know, when you find yourself on the other side of a life-threatening disease as a survivor, I think it's kind of a natural instinct to say, okay, you let me survive. Thanks. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my hand out and I'm going to help the next person through. And that seems to be uh, one of the most challenging things, as I understand it, with uh, any kind of cancer diagnosis is the daunting gauntlet of like what comes next treatment second you know where do you go who do you get your opinions from etc so having a place where people can go and yeah. talk about that sounds so crucially important just for the patient's own mental health 
And I think I've kind of been a friend. I've been in people's living rooms <laughs> for the last several decades. You are um, a familiar, friendly face. And I think that that does play a part in this, though. You know, that they, they consume information from me in a little bit of a different way, kind of woman to woman, friend to friend. I was in your living room. We're kind of almost family. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is part of it. And so I'm really passionate um, about... Uh, this endeavor of mine to go out and educate, you know, not just women, but anyone dealing with any cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But the At Home with Joan campaign um, is pulls in storytelling. You know, that's what I've made my living doing mm -hmm. is telling people's stories. And so it's very natural that they have me go out and interview people um, fighting cancer and surviving cancer from all over the United States. Um, so we kind of represent everybody. All right. Well, listen, Joan London, um, on behalf of women and even men, um, yeah. I would say thank you so much for being that person to come forward and make sure that others know what to ask, how to ask, and where you can go for the information. Well, thank you so much. And I hope everybody joins me at, at homewithjoan.com and uh, and becomes part of our community. All right, well, thank you. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and here's a fantastic statistic. Did you know that if breast cancer is caught early, the five-year survival rate is almost 100%? One of those survivors is Grammy Award-winning musician Sheryl Crow. Now, with no family history or any significant risk factors, Crow was diagnosed at just 44 years old. Cheryl joins us now from Nashville, along with OBGYN and women's health expert, Dr. Jessica Shepard. Welcome to you both. Thank morning. you. Good morning. So, Cheryl, I want to start with you and ask, given that you had no uh, traditional red flags in regards to breast cancer, what was that like when you first got the diagnosis confirmed? Oh, my goodness. I was in shock. You know, I think uh, for someone who's very healthy, and who takes care of themselves, has no family history, and was diligent about getting um, mammography exams. Uh, it was just a very eye-opening experience and everything normal came to a screeching halt. I am now 13 years out. Um, I have enjoyed the dubious honor of being kind of the poster child for early detection. And I celebrate that and embrace that because my story is the story of cure. And until there is a, a cure for breast cancer, early detection is our greatest weapon. So I like to utilize my profile really just to talk to the, the women who follow me, who have been fans for years and they're now mothers and daughters and grandmothers and really encourage them to advocate for their own health and be diligent at the age of 40 of getting their yearly mammogram. Dr. Shepard, I want to turn to you now and ask because there's also a troubling statistic that goes along with breast cancer awareness, and that is that women of color are more likely to die, not more likely to get, but to die from the disease. Why is that? 
Yeah, and so there's multiple reasons why that can happen. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, for African-American women, actually, when you look at the statistic of breast cancer, there are more Caucasian women who are diagnosed, but when you look at triple negative cancer, there are more black women who are diagnosed with triple negative cancer, which, one, is harder to treat. Um, but what goes into that is that when we look at the statistics for African-American women, they are usually diagnosed later on. And so, you know, Cheryl was alluding to um, early detection, that definitely transcends, should transcend in the African-American community because early detection is key because most times they will be diagnosed later on and with triple negative cancer, which is harder to treat. Um, and so I hope that that message resonates today for anyone who's listening. Now, of course, so many women are taught to do uh, self-breast exams in the shower, etc. But there, this is going a step further in making sure you get that mammogram. Um, where is the first step specifically for women who perhaps don't have the financial resources to have that specialty doctor or to be able to go? What are those first steps that they should be taking? Absolutely. So when even we look at um, Medicaid, Medicare, an annual well women visit starting at the age of 40, a mammogram falls into that breast cancer screening category and should be covered by uh, those types of insurances. Now, for women who don't have insurance coverage, there are a lot of organizations uh, that devote their resources to getting mammograms to women who do not have access to that, uh, whether that be um, through hospital proximity um, or an insurance issue. So I do feel that we have we, we have a long way to go, but we do have resources for women who do not have access to care or don't have insurance. I want to turn back to Cheryl Crow and ask, uh, you spoke a little bit earlier about having you know, leading a very healthy life. And I'm wondering, are there any additional steps that you're taking now to keep yourself cancer free? Well, I think, you know, what you put into your body is tantamount. I think it's really important to eat healthy. I think it's very important to exercise. We know that the body cell cellularly functions at a higher level if we're exercising at least 30 minutes a day. One of the things that um, was interesting about my diagnosis is that 13 years ago, we didn't have the technology advancements that we have now. I was, I was um, basically um, relegated to the 2D technology and was told to come back in six months. Um, but rather than waiting the six months, my doctor said, look, let's don't wait six months. I mean, what, something could happen in six months it could, if it is something. So um, one of the great things that we are able to enjoy today is the advancement in technology with this 3D technology where we're able to, to see in dense breasts, which is what I have, uh, the difference between a density in the breast and something that might turn out to be invasive cancer. So Dr. Shepard and I are really encouraging women to not only be diligent about getting their mammogram, but ask your doctor or go to Genius 3D near me online, look at the website and find out where the closest Genius 3D exam is because we're seeing far less false positives and a better rate of early detection with 3D than we did with 2D. All right, ladies, uh, it sounds like we're running out of time here, but I would want to ask one very quick question. If you both had a girlfriend who just got a positive test result back, what would you tell her? You know, I would really tell her I applaud her for going to get uh, the testing that she needs in order to have the diagnosis. So now we can move forward and find treatment for her. When you're diagnosed, your entire community is diagnosed. Those people around you that love you, whether they're your friends, whether they're your children, your parents, uh, your significant other, um, to try to just keep things as normal as possible while you're going through treatment. Honor yourself, put yourself mm -hmm. first. 
give voice to what it is you need or don't need. Um, and to just keep your eyes open and see how, um, at the end of it, how your life is enhanced. Don't miss the big lessons. Wise words. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. For more information on the Genius Exam and where you can find a facility in your community, you can visit our website at metrofocus.org. Drug shortages have been making medications of all kinds difficult to get. But now, vital chemotherapy drugs for cancer patients are also in short supply. And that is leaving hospitals and doctors with difficult decisions about how to treat their patients, including the possibility of delaying treatment and rationing doses in some cases. In New York, as in other states, these kinds of shortages of essential cancer drugs are taking a toll on patients and their physicians. For a look at what's behind the shortages, how doctors and their patients are coping, and what might be done to correct the problem, we turn to Dr. Amanda Nichols-Fader. She is a professor of gynecology and obstetrics at Johns Hopkins Hospital, and also the president-elect of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology. Doctor, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. So let's start off with, with a couple of big picture questions, and then we'll get to some more specifics here. So to set the stage for the conversation, give us a sense of just how widespread these shortages are. Absolutely. So to put things into perspective, uh, the issue of drug shortages in the U.S. is a chronic problem that has existed for more than a decade and, and specifically to prescription generic uh, injectable drug shortages. Uh, however, uh, what we know that drug shortages can occur for a variety of reasons, whether uh, you know manufacturing or labor issues, quality control issues, inability to secure raw materials, among other things. What's particularly problematic, though, that's happening in the current era is that we're seeing an increase year after year in the number of drugs that are undergoing shortage. And in my field in oncology, uh, for life-saving chemotherapy drugs, we're seeing that uh, this class of agents is often in the top five of drugs that are in consistent shortage in the United States. And as of this week, the, both the FDA and um, the American Society of Hospital Pharmacists report that we have 15 indispensable chemotherapy drugs that are currently in shortage. We know that uh, based on national surveys that have been conducted of oncologists and hospital systems, both from the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which is an alliance of academic cancer centers across the US, that this is a serious nationwide problem. With our Society of Juvenile Oncology survey, we found that oncologists in, in more than 40 states and in, in Washington, DC, reported shortage of at least one or more of these drugs at their institutions. And the National Comprehensive Cancer Network survey suggests that for those institutions that responded, 93% were reporting um, a shortage of at least one of these critical chemotherapy drugs. I suspect that for most people, th this sounds completely counterintuitive. Most people, again, I suspect, and I was one of them, would think, well, if you're talking about life-saving drugs, they are, are going to be our priority. They're, those are not going to be the ones where we're going to experience shortages. So explain to us why then, given this counterintuitive nature, why then are these drugs that are so, so integral to saving lives, why are we seeing shortages of them? It's an excellent question, Jack. And these are among the most important medicines and the most important tools we use as oncologists to save and extend lives. And the, the particular drugs that are in shortage 
are actually used in more than 100 different standard of care treatment regimens for, for adults and children with many different cancers from gynecologic cancers like I treat uterine, cervix, ovarian, breast, lung, prostate, testicular cancers, leukemia, bladder, esophageal, the list goes on and on. And so it is an, it is a public healthcare crisis. And one of the reasons for that is that the uh, most chemotherapy drugs uh, that are in shortage are uh, generic formulations. And generic formulations uh, are manufactured often by very few companies. And so there's a lot of market instability right now with the manufacturing of these drugs. Um, one of the reasons for that is that generic drugs um, don't bring in a lot of revenue for manufacturing companies and, and other facilities. And so uh, it's difficult for these organizations to invest in, uh, in production of the drugs because they don't generate much revenue for the companies. But the second um, reason is that there is a lot of market consolidation that has occurred likely because of the, the poor revenue stream. And so you have very few companies around the world, sometimes only one or two companies that produce the raw materials that are needed Needed as the active ingredients in these drugs, or one or two or three, uh, you know, companies that are the primary manufacturers of the leading life-saving cytotoxic generic chemotherapy drugs that we use to help treat patients every day. I want to get in a couple of minutes to this question of, okay, what do we do about all this, including raising awareness? But let's focus a little bit now on some more specifics. So uh, we're talking about these dramatic shortages how are doctors then responding to this in terms of their day-to-day -day care and treatment of patients? Well, I can tell you, Jack, that this is devastating for oncologists because we live to help our patients live better, longer lives and to, to not have access to some of the most important medicines we use to help patients with that is just unacceptable. And it's even more devastating for, for patients, of course, who this is very high stakes for them. However, there's a number of um, strategies that we're using on the oncology side um, that I can talk about. And uh, one of the initiatives I've been involved with at the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and that other societies included the Foundation for Women's Cancer, the American Society of Clinical Oncology and the Gynecologic Oncology Foundation are all working together to develop um, mitigation strategies. And so some of the things we're doing across the country and all oncology pharmacies right now is we're looking at opportunities to preserve the drug supply we have and get more mileage out of it for more patients. We're using uh, special pharmacy techniques that allow us to uh, not waste a single drop of chemotherapy and use those drugs as responsibly as possible across the most patients possible. And in order to do that, some of the things required include uh, things like rounding the chemotherapy vials down to the nearest dose size or using multiple vials uh, in the treatment of multiple patients. So if you have just a few drops of chemotherapy left in one vial, instead of tossing it, you can use some of that and add it to the next vial to treat the next patient and so on and so on. And so these are really critical strategies that oncology pharmacies and oncologists are, are using at this time. But we're also developing alternative drug guidelines and we're using best available evidence from rigorous clinical trials in order to develop recommendations for oncologists so that if one or more of these critical drugs isn't available and there isn't a fantastic substitution available, we are creating new, new drug guidelines that um, will enable our physicians and 
healthcare providers to take care of patients in the best possible way with other standard of care drugs. And in many cases, the alternative substitutions that, that are being recommended will be just as effective as the standard of care drugs that are in shortage, but they have trade-offs. They may have much more toxicity or side effects than, than the the drugs that are in shortage, sometimes permanent side effects. And so we need to be thinking, you know, about that for, with our patients and that this is only, a, you know, a temporary strategy. You you mentioned uh, how precarious the situation is. And I was going to ask you about what are the consequences for patients. And I think you've, you've talked a lot about that right now. But let's talk now about consequences for physicians. And and, I'll, and this is sort of a personal question. Um, this is what you do. I mentioned to you beforehand that, that this piece came about because I was having a conversation a few days ago with, with my daughter, Dr. Ashley Haggerty, who's been on um, this program before, who had recommended that I reach out for you. And, and, and she's a gynoc at Hackensack Meridian Riverview Medical Center. And she was, it, it, maybe anguish is a, too strong a word, but she was certainly deeply concerned about this. And I know you are too. So what are you suggesting to physicians, especially through the organization, the Society of, of uh, Gynecologic Oncology? What are you saying to your members about how they handle this, both professionally and personally? Thank you, Jack, for asking that question. Uh, while our patients are our singular focus, you know, their health and well-being is is what we're extremely passionate about. And I know for Dr. Haggerty Ford, it's, it, Ford Haggerty, excuse me, the same same thing. You know, we are we're devastated, but we are also taking action, and um, we are creating better opportunities for patients during this strategy than we could have ever imagined, but also uh, on top of um, hosting multiple educational webinars for our members to uh, help them not only with developing oncology policies at their institutions, putting them in contact with foundations that might be able to help them get access to drug if the if the manufacturers or group purchasing organizations that they contract with at their institutions don't have drug available. Um, but we're also uh, providing education and supportive services for our members uh, through uh, webinars about how to have difficult conversations with patients, how to support your own wellness uh, during this time and having conversations no oncologist ever would want to have with a patient. Um, and we've pr provided a, a, a a private forum for our oncologists to talk about, you know, what what what's going on, what 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 what's going on at the ground on the ground at their institutions, and how can we best support them in that. Similarly, um, the advocacy arm of the Society of Juvenile Oncology, the Foundation for Women's Cancer, which is led by Dr. Ginger Gardner, a New York-based uh, oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, um, is working on the patient advocacy side. How do we support our patients through this? How do we get the word out to them and help them um, also get, get access to drug, work with their local oncologists um, to, to, to receive best care? And we also have an, um, an open survey that we've submitted across patient advocates um, in the U.S. to understand what's what their feelings and 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 uh, and thoughts are about what's happening and how they can come to the table with us as we're doing the third piece is the advocacy piece and the advocacy piece is with the FDA directly with um, with uh, Capitol Hill legislators and with. Uh, drug manufacturers and group purchasing organizations. We as oncologists want to have a seat at this table 
to develop long-term solutions so that this never happens again. This is this is not sustainable for this to keep happening. And lives are going to be affected uh, if we don't get a handle on this quickly, but also not just mitigate short-term, but look at long-term solutions as well. Mm -hmm.